Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. Would you speak now to us, apply it to our hearts, and may we respond rightly and practice it in our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, page 947 in the Pew Bibles. Romans 11, 11 through 24. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles... How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, if, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This morning we continue in our series, working through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Last time as we came to the opening of chapter 11, Paul restated the question that has been driving his discussion since the opening of this section since the section began in chapter 9. Has God rejected his chosen, his beloved people, Israel? And he again gave his definitive answer, by no means, absolutely not. And he provided his evidence in two parts. Paul himself is exhibit A. 
He himself was a Jew trusting in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then exhibit B was the remnant of Jewish believers, just as God had preserved a remnant faithful to himself at other points in redemptive history. And then he closed, he closed that section with the sad reality of the fate of the rest of Israel, those outside of this remnant, as he writes in verse 7, the rest were hardened. And he provides scripture proofs for this in verses 8 through 10. And this now leads to the passage before us this morning and the question that launches us into this section in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is there a future for Israel? Is there any hope for them? Is this hardening permanent or is there any hope that this hardening may come to an end someday? Well, Paul makes it clear there is a hope. There is a future for Israel. In fact, he has a concrete mission strategy to reach not only the Gentile nations, but the Jews as well. We'll see that in the first part of our sermon this morning. And we'll see how Paul's mission strategy shapes our mission strategy today as well. Then in part two, we'll consider how the Lord is working to graft the Gentiles, us, into his one people of God, as Paul illustrates this with this imagery of the olive tree. In doing so, he offers a warning to the Gentiles, but also further hope for the Jews. Now, you might ask, what does this passage have to say to you today, especially in terms of practical, down-to-earth application? Certainly, Paul was writing to the church in his day, a church that was facing many difficult questions, questions like, why had so many Jews refused to believe? Would this, would this ever change? And also, what was the place of the Gentiles in a New Testament church that had its roots in the Old Testament people of Israel? And how were they to get along with their Jewish brethren in the church? Now, some of these questions may not be all quite so pressing in the church today, and yet they're questions that are still worth asking, still worth getting answers to. And of course, you know, God has given his word to us, to teach us, to train us, to equip us for all righteousness. Certainly Paul's warnings concerning pride, concerning standing firm in the faith are warnings we all need to hear and need to heed. We all struggle with pride, with doubt. So let us begin with our first point this morning. God's purpose in Israel's hardening. Paul's argument in this section, it follows a, a pattern that's familiar to us by now. He begins with a rhetorical question, then a strong denial, then he lays out his own mission strategy and concludes with Israel's future hope. I already consider briefly Paul's question, verse 11. So I ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? That is, did they fall into irretrievable spiritual ruin and destruction? And this Paul emphatically denies by no means. Rather, God, as he so commonly does, God brought good out of evil. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. The gospel went first to the Jews in Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria, but then outwards to the ends of the earth. It was actually through the persecution of the early church by the Jews that the disciples were scattered outwards. And as they went, they proclaimed the gospel, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And so just as Paul writes here, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Then Paul expands on this concept of jealousy. And he shows how it has become a central feature of his mission strategy in verses 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And Paul continued to preach the gospel to the Jews first in every city he went to, and often he found a few converts among the Jews. But then he would begin to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, where he found a much more receptive audience. And we saw the same pattern in our reading earlier, describing Paul's ministry in this very city of Rome. But Paul had first introduced this concept of jealousy back earlier when he quoted Deuteronomy 32:21 in chapter 10, verse 19. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Now, when we think of jealousy, we often think of it as a negative, even a, a sinful thing. And often it is. Probably most often it is. It's a breaking of the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. A coveting, as I said earlier, it's an inordinate desire for something which is not ours. And this is sin. But there can be a positive jealousy which is not sin, a desiring of that which you ought to desire. And it's in this way that God is, and he describes himself as a jealous God. Even as he declares in the midst of the second commandment, forbidding idol worship, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, that is idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is rightly jealous that we worship him. He desires our worship. We ought to worship him, and he desires our worship. Similarly, it is right for a husband or a wife to be jealous for the purity and the faithfulness within the marriage. Here as well, Paul is applying this concept of jealousy in a positive, in a good sense. The Jews ought to desire Christ. The gospel promises are rightly their inheritance. The idea is that when the Jews see the nations around them enjoying the spiritual blessings of the Messiah poured out on them, not only eternal salvation, but all the spiritual blessings that are found in Christ, wisdom, knowledge, sanctification, spiritual gifts, the communion of the saints, and the list goes on, the Jews will grow jealous And they will want to embrace Christ for themselves. Of course, these are the very blessings that were promised to the Jews, but are now being poured out upon the Gentiles. We are enjoying their inheritance, although at no cost to them. 
for the riches of Christ are never ending. But as they see others enjoying their inheritance, why should they not grow jealous and desire to enjoy the blessings that are rightfully theirs? And so, when you hear a mission strategy based on jealousy, this may at first sound strange in your ears. But when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Let me illustrate a bit what this looks like, this idea of it going first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles and then back to the Jews. Think about a wave hitting the side of a pool. The wave goes up, it goes down, it goes forward. It hits the side of the pool, it bounces back, and it returns where it came from, causing increasing swells where it came from at first. And Paul is saying something similar is going on here. The gospel went first to the Jews, but when they rejected it, it went out to the Gentiles. And as a wave going out, it spreads out further. And when it arrived to the Gentiles, it was received in greater numbers. But now he is saying there will be jealousy amongst the Jews as they see the gospel received by the Gentiles. The wave will bounce back, and now there will be revival amongst the Jews. And so Paul says, insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I make it glorious. I project it to the world. I want everyone to see in order that somehow I may make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. Now Paul here doesn't overestimate the impact of his own ministry. The end goal is clear in verses 12 and 15. The salvation of the fullness of Israel, their full inclusion. But Paul says his impact will only save some here in verse 14. Now Paul is getting the ball rolling. He is setting an example that will be followed throughout the rest of church history. And so we should consider how this applies to us today. There are ministries today, perhaps you've heard of Jews for Jesus. There's also a a smaller Reformed ministry called Chaim, Christians Announcing Israel's Messiah. Ministries that focus specifically on reaching Jews with gospel. And certainly we can support such ministries, whether financially or in prayer. And these are ministries that can have a more focused impact because of their particular focus and skill set, just like a ministry might focus on reaching Muslims or reaching Mormons. However, our church doesn't necessarily need to have a ministry focused just on reaching Jews in order to be playing a part in the heart of God for reaching his people, Israel. We can have the same strategy today that Paul had in his day, For even as we make disciples of any and all nations by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and we seek to magnify this ministry, just like Paul, we will stir up the Jews to jealousy with the hope that they too will embrace by faith the one and only Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to the future hope Israel's trespass and then their full acceptance means life from the dead. 
You might have noticed I skipped over verse 12, and that's because there's a close parallel between verses 12 and 15, which bracket this section. Let's read now verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If you look at the parallels between these verses, you'll notice in verse 12, Paul simply says, Israel's full inclusion will mean something far better, something far greater than the riches of the Gentiles produced by their failure at rejecting their Messiah. It's better that we don't get the details until verse 15, where he says their acceptance will mean life from the dead. What does he mean here by life from the dead? Now, some interpret this spiritually, simply to refer to the spiritual new life that is received from Christ by every believer. Now, I agree with the majority of scholars that it's, it's more likely that Paul means something more than that. He said it's something far better. And so I think Paul here is speaking literally to refer to the general resurrection of the dead, which will occur after all the elect have believed and then Christ returns on the last day. And this actually lines up with the timeline that Paul gives later in the chapter in verses 25 and 26, where he writes a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. But just as Israel's rejection of their Messiah led to Christ's crucifixion and the gospel then going out to all the nations, we see here then at the end of history, their fullness and acceptance will usher in Christ's return and the general resurrection on the last day, what Paul here calls life from the dead. Now Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, prophesies accurately about these future events. Notice, he does not tell us the day or the hour, and so we must be always ready. Although many have conceptions of exactly what the restoration of Israel will look like, I would say don't hold these ideas too tightly. Example, many speculate that there will be a mass conversion of all remaining Jews immediately before Christ's return based on Romans eleven twenty five and 26. And we'll look more closely at those verses next time. And it's certainly a possibility. You may even pray that that would be exactly the way it happens. But I don't know that we can be certain that those teaches, those verses actually teach a mass conversion before Christ returns. I certainly would not say, I know that Jesus won't return tomorrow because the mass conversion hasn't happened yet, and so we don't have to be ready for Jesus to come back yet. Absolutely not. We know that the Jews had many preconceptions about what the coming of the Messiah would look like based on the prophecies in the Old Testament. But then Jesus is coming, fulfilled every prophecy, and yet was very different from what they expected, so much so that most rejected.
their long-awaited Messiah. And so, yes, we must trust the prophecy, we must believe the prophecy, and yet also hold our interpretations and expectations lightly. God's word must be fulfilled, that is certain, but perhaps in ways we do not expect. And of course, Christ has taught us, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, 44. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. This concludes our first point, God's purpose in Israel's hardening. And brings us to our second, the olive tree of the one people of God. In verse 16, Paul introduces two illustrations in quick succession. First, he uses the illustration of the dough. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. The first fruits are a small portion offered to God, and this makes the whole lump, which we reserve for ourselves, holy. From this first illustration, Paul quickly shifts to a second illustration, the olive tree, which will be the main illustration going forward for the rest of this section. The main purpose of this first illustration is to introduce this concept of holiness, This is not usually associated with the olive tree, but it is associated with this dough, this grain offering presented to God. As Paul introduces the olive tree, he writes, 16b, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul's point is that he is writing about a holy tree, a people set apart, devoted to God, God's holy people, Israel. Now we must ask, what are represented by the roots and the branches in this illustration? And you're likely more familiar with Jesus' illustration of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. And so your first instinct is to say, Jesus is the root, we are the branches. This is a different illustration. Yes, we, God's people, are the branches, that's the same. But Jesus is not the root that Paul has in mind here. In this illustration, the root represents Israel, and in particular, it's even more particular, the patriarchs, whom God sets apart as holy, and to whom God gave his promises, and through them, to Israel and to all the nations of the earth. And of the patriarchs, foremost is Abraham, to whom God gave the great promise in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul has three purposes for this olive tree illustration. First, he wants to show that there is Only one people of God throughout history. The unbelieving Jews have been cut off. The believing Gentiles have been grafted in. But always there remains one and only one people of God. Just as we confess in the Nicene Creed, there is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Its roots are in the Old Testament, but it continues forward into the New Testament without any break, without any discontinuity. Second, Paul uses this illustration 
to issue two warnings to the Gentiles. And third, he uses it to give hope for the Jews. So let's consider these two warnings to the Gentiles. The first warning is, do not boast. Do not be arrogant. Watch out for pride. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Some of the scholars they note here that Paul, he is a city dweller. He grew up in the city. He doesn't know anything. He reveals in this illustration his lack of agricultural knowledge. No self-respecting farmer would graft a wild olive shoot into a cultivated olive tree. Wild olive trees were scraggly little things that produced little fruit, while cultivated olive trees were wondrous things that could live for thousands of years and produce abundant, delicious fruit. But of course, that's exactly the point that Paul is making. No farmer would do such a thing. But God, but God in his infinite mercy has extended his salvation to the nations. He has sent out the gospel to the ends of the earth. He has taken the wild olive branch, that scraggly little thing, and grafted the nations into his cultivated olive tree. So Paul says here, the Gentile must always remember that the church retains its Jewish heritage and must always respect that. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. God gave his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and we have inherited those promises from them. Yes, it's true, the gospel has now gone out to all nations, and by the grace of God, we have received those promises through faith, but we will never cut the Old Testament out of our Bibles. God forbid. We will never forget that Jesus is a Jew who perfectly kept the Torah on our behalf, who offered himself as our Passover lamb, and now stands as our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek in the heavenly tabernacle. These things are essentials of the Christian faith. Our faith is Abrahamic at its very root, and that will never change. And so we must never boast. You might ask, is Paul saying not to boast over the unbelieving branches broken off or the believing branches still on the tree? It's not entirely clear, but best not to boast at all. Not to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. Even as Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the nations, he always did so with a heart and a strategy targeted ultimately to reach his fellow kinsmen, the Jews. And we must have the same heart for the Jews as well. So we dare not boast. We must never grow arrogant. We certainly must not become anti-Semitic. Sadly, anti-Semitism is far too common in church history. Some of the worst examples of failing to heed this warning has 
have occurred in Germany, the very birthplace of the Reformation. Luther mistakenly believed that the Reformation taking place during his lifetime would lead to the mass conversion of the Jews. And when this failed to occur, later in his life he grew deeply anti-Semitic. And sadly, some of his final writings, absolutely vile in this regard. Even more grievously, Luther's later writings were popularized by the Nazi party, And the Nazis were largely supported by the Christian state church in Germany when implementing the final solution in the Holocaust. I'm not saying the Nazis were true Christians, and yet these stand as examples of grievous failures to heed this warning. Let us not follow those examples. Here I'd also like to very briefly, and this is a complex topic I can only touch on briefly, very briefly address the concept of replacement theology. Replacement theology is the view that in the New Testament, the Christian church has completely replaced Old Testament Israel so that Israel is no longer the people of God. They've been replaced by the church. And you can see immediately this does not line up with what Paul is teaching here in Romans 9 through 11, where he has clearly said that Israel's story is not over. They are still God's people, and although fallen, there remains a remnant. Or better, they have stumbled but not fallen. There remains a remnant. There remains a future hope. Now, Reformed covenant theology, what our churches teach and believe, of course, based on the scriptures, especially passages like these, We have sometimes been accused of teaching replacement theology, but we are simply following passages like this one, Romans chapter 11. There is and always has been one people of God, one olive tree, since the time of the patriarchs forward. And as Gentiles, we give thanks to God that we have been grafted in through faith by the grace and mercy of God, and we dare not boast. Second, Paul exhorts us to stand firm through faith. Verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Here Paul is exhorting us to a right reverential fear and awe of God. We are to recognize the character of the one true God, the God of amazing grace who has had mercy on us in Jesus Christ, and yet the gospel is the standard And if you do not stand firm by faith, you will face the judge. And God is a strict judge, but he used the language here, a severe judge. He has the severity of a perfectly just judge who applies the perfect standard of justice according to the perfect law of righteousness. And if you are judged by that law, standing upon your own righteousness or your own record, of obedience, which is to say, a record of disobedience, 
you will surely perish. The only escape, the only salvation can be found through trusting in Christ. That your sins might be transferred to his account and his righteousness transferred to your own. Him paying for your sins once and for all on the cross. As Paul speaks of branches being grafted in and then later cut off, these verses do raise the question, can a genuine believer be grafted in and then later stop trusting in Christ and so be cut off from Christ, cut off from the olive tree of God's people? I think we have to recognize that is not what Paul is actually saying here if we take a moment to think things through. Think For example, of the Jew who had been cut off from the tree. This person had never truly been saved. They were in the visible church as a Jew, but then having rejected the Messiah, they are now cut off. The same is true of the person who had once had some external signs of being a believer and so was brought into the visible church, but now has wandered off, is no longer standing firm through faith, and is cut off of the olive tree, put out of the church. We who are looking on from the outside can never know the heart. We only can judge a person by their fruit. But in this case, we would rightly say that the person is a branch that had been grafted into the visible church, but now has been cut off. But it's not true to say that they were saved and then unsaved. However, If they turn to the Lord, if they put their trust in him, they can be grafted in again. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Hope for the Jews, verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? We've already seen that Paul has a mission strategy to reach the Jews and that the Lord himself has a plan for their full inclusion before his return. And here we see the ease with which they are restored back into the church. They are, after all, The natural cultivated branches and their forefathers, the patriarchs, are the root. Even in a predominantly Gentile church, this is their people. This is their home. This is their heritage. Of course, the pathway back for a Jew is the same as it is for all. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only way to be saved. This is the only way to be grafted into the family tree of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile. This is the hope for Israel. This is the hope for all peoples. So I ask you this morning, have you taken this step? Have you embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? And I want to speak now, especially to the children among us here this morning. Covenant children, you who are born and raised in this church, you are branches on the tree by virtue of your baptism. And yet each of you are also called to embrace your heritage, to receive the promises, to receive Christ by faith for yourself. You cannot rest 
and trust in your parents' faith, just as the Jews could not be saved by Abraham's faith. You must trust Jesus Christ for your own salvation. Now this application is for all. Once you are trusting in Christ, you must always remember that salvation is all of grace, received by faith, which is itself a gift from God, that there is and there never will be any room for boasting, no room for human pride for Christ. He has done it all. We are but his humble servants who simply receive his bounteous gifts of grace. And so we say praise to the Lord of mercy, to the God of all grace. Shall we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory as we look at this olive tree and see how you have been working throughout all history to gather to your people, gather to yourself, a holy people, knowing that each and every branch in that tree from the root on up is a sinner saved by your grace, deserving nothing and yet receiving it all simply by your mercy and knowing it is all done because you out of love for us, sent your son, Jesus Christ. And he died on that cross and rose to new life out of love for us. And so we worship you, so we glorify you, and we pray this all, even as we continue to cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.